Chapter Twenty One of the Gilded Age. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Gilded Age by Mark Twain and Charles Dudley Warner. Chapter Twenty One. O oh, lift your natures up, embrace our aims, work out your freedom, girls. Knowledge is now no more a fountain sealed. Drink deep till the habits of the slave, the sins of emptiness, gossip and spite, and slander, die. The Princess Whether medicine is a science, or only an empirical method of getting a living out of the ignorance of the human race, Ruth found before her first term was over at the medical school that there were other things she needed to know quite as much as that which is taught in medical books, and that she could never satisfy her aspirations without more general culture. "'Does your doctor know anything? I don't mean about medicine, but about things in general. Is he a man of information and good sense?' once asked an old practitioner. If he doesn't know anything but medicine, the chance is he doesn't know that. The close application to her special study was beginning to tell upon Ruth's delicate health also, and the summer brought with it only weariness and indisposition for any mental effort. In this condition of mind and body, the quiet of her home and the unexciting companionship of those about her were more than ever tiresome. She followed with more interest Philip's sparkling account of his life in the West, and longed for his experiences, and to know some of those people of a world so different from here, who alternately amused and displeased him. He, at least, was learning the world, the good and the bad of it, as must happen to every one who accomplishes anything in it. But what, Ruth wrote, could a woman do, tied up by custom, and cast into particular circumstances, out of which it was almost impossible to extricate herself? Philip thought that he would go some day and extricate Ruth, but he did not write that, for he had the instinct to know that this was not the extrication she dreamed of, and that she must find out by her own experience what her heart really wanted. Philip was not a philosopher, to be sure, but he had the old-fashioned notion that whatever a woman's theories of life might be, she would come round to matrimony, only give her time. He could indeed recall to mind one woman, and he never knew a nobler, whose whole soul was devoted, and who believed that her life was consecrated to a certain benevolent project in singleness of life, who yielded to the touch of matrimony as an icicle yields to a sunbeam. Neither at home nor elsewhere did Ruth utter any complaint, or admit any weariness or doubt of her ability to pursue the path she had marked out for herself. But her mother saw clearly enough her struggle with infirmity, and was not deceived by either her gaiety or by the cheerful composure which she carried into all the ordinary duties that fell to her. She saw plainly enough that Ruth needed an entire change of scene and of occupation, and perhaps she believed that such a change, with the knowledge of the world it would bring, would divert Ruth from a course for which she felt she was physically entirely unfitted. It therefore suited the wishes of all concerned, when autumn came, that Ruth should go away to school. She selected a large New England seminary, of which she had often heard Philip speak, 
which was attended by both sexes and offered almost collegiate advantages of education thither she went in september and began for the second time in the year a life new to her the seminary was the chief feature of falkill a village of two to three thousand inhabitants it was a prosperous school with three hundred students a large corps of teachers men and women and with a venerable rusty row of academic buildings on the shaded square of the town the students lodged and boarded in private families in the place and so it came about that while the school did a great deal to support the town the town gave the students society and the sweet influences of home life it is at least respectful to say that the influences of home life are sweet ruth's home by the intervention of philip was in a family one of the rare exceptions in life or in fiction that had never known better days the montagues it is perhaps well to say had intended to come over in the mayflower but were detained at delfthaven by the illness of a child they came over to massachusetts bay in another vessel and thus escaped the onus of that brevet nobility under which the successors of the mayflower pilgrims have descended having no factitious weight of dignity to carry the montagues steadily improved their condition from the day they landed and they were never more vigorous or prosperous than at the date of this narrative with character compacted by the rigid puritan discipline of more than two centuries they had retained its strength and purity and thrown off its narrowness and were now blossoming under the generous modern influences squire oliver montague a lawyer who had retired from the practice of his profession except in rare cases dwelt in a square old-fashioned new england mansion a quarter of a mile away from the green it was called a mansion because it stood alone with ample fields about it and had an avenue of trees leading to it from the road and on the west commanded a view of a pretty little lake with gentle slopes and nodding groves but it was just a plain roomy house capable of extending to many guests an unpretending hospitality the family consisted of the squire and his wife a son and a daughter married and not at home a son in college at cambridge another son at the seminary and a daughter alice who was a year or more older than ruth having only riches enough to be able to gratify reasonable desires and yet make their gratifications always a novelty and a pleasure the family occupied just that mean in life which is so rarely attained and still more rarely enjoyed without discontent if ruth did not find so much luxury in the house as in her own home there were evidences of culture of intellectual activity and of a zest in the affairs of all the world which greatly impressed her every room had its bookcases or bookshelves and was more or less a library upon every table was liable to be a litter of new books fresh periodicals and daily newspapers there were plants in the sunny windows and some choice engravings on the walls with bits of colour in oil or water-colours the piano was sure to be open and strewn with music and there were photographs and little souvenirs here and there of foreign travel an absence of any what-nots in the corners with rows of cheerful shells and hindu gods and chinese idols and nests of useless boxes of lacquered wood might be taken as denoting a languidness in the family concerning foreign missions 
but perhaps unjustly. At any rate, the life of the world flowed freely into this hospitable house, and there was always so much talk there of the news of the day, of the new books and of authors, of Boston radicalism and New York civilization, and the virtue of Congress, that small gossip stood a very poor chance. All this was in many ways so new to Ruth that she seemed to have passed into another world in which she experienced a freedom and a mental exhilaration unknown to her before. Under this influence she entered upon her studies with keen enjoyment, finding for a time all the relaxation she needed in the charming social life at the Montague house. "'It is strange,' she wrote to Philip in one of her occasional letters, "'that you never told me more about this delightful family, "'and scarcely mentioned Alice, who is the life of it, "'just the noblest girl, unselfish, "'knows how to do so many things with lots of talent, "'with a dry humour, and an odd way of looking at things, "'and yet quiet and even serious often, "'one of your capable New England girls. "'We shall be great friends.' It had never occurred to Philip that there was anything extraordinary about the family that needed mention. He knew dozens of girls like Alice, he thought to himself, but only one like Ruth. Good friends the two girls were from the beginning. Ruth was a study to Alice, the product of a culture entirely foreign to her experience, so much a child in some things, so much a woman in others and Ruth in turn, it must be confessed, probing Alice sometimes with her serious grey eyes, wondered what her object in life was, and whether she had any purpose beyond living as she now saw her. For she could scarcely conceive of a life that should not be devoted to the accomplishment of some definite work, and she had no doubt that in her own case everything else would yield to the professional career she had marked out. "'So you know Philip Sterling,' said Ruth one day as the girls sat at their sewing. Ruth never embroidered and never sewed when she could avoid it. Bless her! "'Oh, yes, we are old friends. Philip used to come to Falkill often when he was in college. He was once rusticated here for a term.' "'Rusticated?' "'Suspended for some college scrape. He was a great favourite here.' Father and he were famous friends. Father said that Philip had no end of nonsense in him, and was always blundering into something, but he was a royal good fellow and would come out all right. Did you think he was fickle? Why, I never thought whether he was or not, replied Alice, looking up. I suppose he was always in love with some girl or another, as college boys are. He used to make me his confidant now and then, and be terribly in the dumps. "'Why did he come to you?' pursued Ruth. "'You were younger than he.' "'I'm sure I don't know. He was at our house a good deal. Once at a picnic by the lake, at the risk of his own life, he saved Sister Milly from drowning, and we all liked to have him here. Perhaps he thought, as he had saved one sister, the other ought to help him when he was in trouble.' I don't know. The fact was that Alice was a person who invited confidences because she never betrayed them and gave abundant sympathy in return. There are persons whom we all know, to whom human confidences, troubles and heartaches flow as naturally as streams to a placid lake. 
This is not a history of Falkill, nor of the Montague family, worthy as both are of that honour, and this narrative cannot be diverted into long loitering with them. If the reader visits the village to-day, he will doubtless be pointed out the Montague dwelling, where Ruth lived, the cross-lots path she traversed to the seminary, and the venerable chapel with its cracked bell. In the little society of the place, the Quaker girl was a favourite, and no considerable social gathering or pleasure-party was thought complete without her. There was something in this seemingly transparent and yet deep character, in her childlike gaiety and enjoyment of the society about her, and in her not seldom absorption in herself, that would have made her long remembered there if no events had subsequently occurred to recall her to mind. To the surprise of Alice, Ruth took to the small gaieties of the village with a zest of enjoyment that seemed foreign to one who had devoted her life to a serious profession from the highest motives. Alice liked society well enough, she thought, but there was nothing exciting in that of Falkill, nor anything novel in the attentions of the well-bred young gentleman one met in it. It must have worn a different aspect to Ruth, for she entered into its pleasures at first with curiosity, and then with interest, and finally with a kind of staid abandon that no one would have deemed possible for her. Parties, picnics, rowing matches, moonlight strolls, nutting expeditions in the October woods, Alice declared that it was a whirl of dissipation. The fondness of Ruth, which was scarcely disguised, for the company of agreeable young fellows, who talked nothings, gave Alice opportunity for no end of banter. "'Do you look upon them as subjects, dear?' she would ask. And Ruth laughed her merriest laugh, and then looked sober again. Perhaps she was thinking, after all, whether she knew herself. "'If you should rear a duck in the heart of the Sahara, no doubt it would swim if you brought it to the Nile.' Surely no one would have predicted, when Ruth left Philadelphia, that she would become absorbed to this extent, and so happy, in a life so unlike that she thought she desired. But no one can tell how a woman will act under any circumstances. The reason novelists nearly always fail in depicting women when they make them act, is that they let them do what they have observed some woman has done at some time or another. And that is where they make a mistake for a woman will never do again what has been done before. It is this uncertainty that causes women, considered as materials for fiction, to be so interesting to themselves and to others. As the fall went on and the winter, Ruth did not distinguish herself greatly at the Falkill Seminary as a student, a fact that apparently gave her no anxiety, and did not diminish her enjoyment of a new sort of power which had awakened within her. End of chapter 21